You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, May 7th, 2007, Episode 18, The Vipassana Vendetta. In this episode, Vincent Horn continues to share his reflections and experiences of a two-month meditation retreat he recently completed. In this podcast, he discusses doing karma yoga during long-term retreats, state chasing and meditation, and suffering and death in practice. We hope you enjoy this conversation with this insightful Buddhist geek. This is part two of a three-part series. If you enjoy Buddhist Geeks podcasts, please consider supporting us through either a recurring monthly donation or a one-time donation in amount of your choice. To do so, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash donate. We thank you for your support. One interesting thing about retreats is, well, there are the Dharma talks and the actual sitting and, and walking meditation, but then there's also each day a 45-minute period of work meditation, which they call karma yoga. So that's a period of, for instance, I was working in the kitchen, and one of the cooks told me it's, it's engaged Buddhism practice. I remember one of those, the, a funny story you had told me about a past retreat where there's a lot of neuroses that come out, that get played out in, the, in some of those work situations that seem like can actually be practiced in and of themselves in a more active way without going into the world because everyone's practicing there, you know, but at the same time quirky things happen <laughs> oh yeah most definitely i i remember the f- the first retreat i did i was uh, during the work period i didn't have a, a work period i didn't have a, a job during the morning work period and i was walking in the, one of these walking halls and you know minding my own business and this guy came up with this huge broom and and he's like get out of my way <laughs> and I, you know I, I this is my first retreat i didn't really get you know that it wasn't cool to be walking where someone was supposed to be doing their job oh. so i you know took it really personally and was upset for you know at this guy for days really? wow. and uh, it, it was it was a great opportunity although i didn't take advantage of it on that retreat to notice kind of the reactive patterns that were happening in my mind right so those present some opportunities if we can yeah. pay attention to them and not be pissed off at people and yeah, only that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's it's funny in in my tradition they they call it the 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 vipassana vendetta when, <laughs> when you get nice. upset with someone and and you build up these stories about them you know another retreatant for instance that you've never even talked to uh, and then the op- the flip side of that is what's called the vipassana romance and that's when you fall in love with and you know. <laughs> Um, maybe even marry and then finally divorce someone all in the course of a couple days. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, it's, which, it can be really powerful to have those experiences. I had a few of those on my retreat, and I was just blown away at how quickly like my mind would be consumed with a thought like that, mm-hmm. kind of repeating that situation in my head. Right. And I wouldn't have noticed it as much out of the retreat, but uh, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was like, this is yeah. crazy. Yeah, like, what the hell's wrong with me? <laughs> so, this being your longest retreat, what was your experience like in general? Was it any different than, say, doing a four-week meditation retreat? What what sort of experiences did you have on the retreat or that you felt the retreat helped you to have or come by? Well, it's it's an interesting question, and it's one that, you know, 
when I come home, pe- my family members ask, people that I care care about me ask, and right. it's funny because on the one hand, what I'm really starting to realize is doing this practice is that it's not about the experiences that I have at all. Mm. It's more about the relationship to them, and mm. um, because they're all coming and going, right. you know, the question that most interests me is, you know, what what's real. I wonder if that question um, that it seems like we all have when we first do meditation or even for a long time is like, what experience will I have? You know, what experience is in store for me? And I imagine yes. the longer you're on retreat, the more tiring that question gets and the more yeah. exhaustive it's just like, who cares? I mean, you can, ups- yeah. it seems like you could uphold that for say a week or two weeks and keep that energy going into the thought, what will I experience? But I, I wonder yeah. if you're on retreat long enough, does that just drop away because it's ridiculous? <laughs> Well, the problem is it never drops away. At oh. least, like, I mean, okay, it drops away for for periods, but uh-huh. that's that's kind of the the first noble truth in Buddhism of suffering is that the mind is always uh-huh. leaning towards or wanting something to happen different than what's happening. Right. And so that that state chasing, that wanting some state, wanting some experience to happen, mm-hmm. it's so humbling and so embarrassing mm-hmm. to watch over a course of two months just the continual desire for certain experiences or experiences I've never even had to arise. Right. And it's like, wow, I'm really, uh, this is really kind of sucky. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, it's funny Yeah, a two month retreat. I mean, it just, it really makes that up, that tendency in the mind obvious, hmm. at least for me. And there was a, I mean, there were points on the retreat where, it was so painful to watch my mind doing that over and over again that I started asking myself, what's true of all states? You know, what's, what's true of every experience that arises? Is there something, is there something that can be found? Where, where is a true refuge is another way of asking mm-hmm. it. Where can I rest? Mm-hmm. Because no experience can be rested in, at least none that I've found. Right. Even a non-experience can't be rested in. Hmm. So it's it's like where where can I finally take refuge? And hmm. maybe the answer to that is there is no refuge. But it's I, you know it seems to be an important question, and I think even for beginning meditators, it can be an important question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's I think that's the reason most people get into meditation, anyways, because they want to rest and be at peace. Right. And the weird assumption in the beginning, at least for almost everyone I've known, is that there's going to be a state or an experience right. that's going to give me rest. Yeah. And somehow that doesn't ever really come through, or at least not in the several years I've been practicing. Yeah, I think we kind of started talking about this after you got back on retreat when we just spoke over the phone. Yeah. And um, something I talked about in my post on conceptuality. Mm-hmm. Was that just what I begin to, to notice after so mm-hmm. long? Of yeah, there's just always this desire to find some final resting place, and none of the practices of Buddhism and the teachings really seem to offer that. Even though we can take them to be that way, we think that they're going to offer that to us. But really, what they're doing is just constantly pulling the rug out from us to say yeah. that there is a place. And so it seems like practice is just more of an exhaustion of things, like we were maybe talking about it a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, things become more subtle and there's, I mean, there's a certain process of death and rebirth that happens in practice where identity, you know, continues 
to be questioned, you know, what I'm identified with, my, you know, my body, for instance, or my thoughts, or uh, even really high things like my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Those, all those things are, are kind of put into question, you know, if one's doing, the pro- you know, uh, uh, contemplative practice correctly, I think. And at some point, those identities and those those kind of holdings are seen through to some degree and, and somehow there's kind of a dying to them that happens mm-hmm. I think I mean all the spiritual traditions talk about that and mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting that that's not really emphasized that much mm. uh, it, it, well okay maybe it is maybe certain teachers emphasize it but I don't know I find that it's just not brought up very much is that what you're saying or that it, in comparison to other things aspects of in comparison to yeah in comparison to having these profound states of experience uh, of dissolving into oneness or emptiness or, uh, you know, ex, you know, extraordinary love and compassion and being a bodhisattva and going around waking people up. It's like, no, part of that uh, is, you know, well, it sounds a lot better, just, you know? Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it's, it's definitely got a more, and you know, Daniel Ingram, who we've had on the site, he talks a lot about this and, you know, I'm definitely influenced by his perspectives, but right. also in my experience, I've seen it to be true where, there is a huge in retreat. I mean, I spend a lot of time uh, in anguish and in complete, you know, uh, states of dissatisfaction and pain. And it's like that's actually part of the practice, and it's part of the progress of unfolding. Yeah, I think uh, you're right on this because I didn't. I don't think I've looked at practice in that way really until I met you, and then also started. Uh, you know, reading Daniel's work or listening to him talk. And that's definitely emphasized a lot more, you know, by him and mm-hmm. not so much in other, uh, with other teachers or in the teachings themselves, or at least they're not brought out, you know, I suspect that yeah. they're in there, you know, they're there, they're there for sure. And teachers, they'll hint at them a lot. Uh, even teachers on this retreat, they'll, they would, they would bring up, um, periods in their own practices to kind of illustrate this point where they were experiencing a lot of fear, terror, anger, desire, you know, an extraordinary amount of difficult emotions. They'll bring that up in order to make sure that people get that it's normal. Yeah. And But the funny thing is, um, a lot of people will hear that, and somehow there's still the tendency to try to... to to get to some state or to avoid those kind of difficult states. Right, like those... It seems like a part of it. Right, rather than seeing them as something peripheral that they're actually... The the, the practice itself, you know? Yeah. That that they're actually saying something about your practice directly. Yeah, yeah. There's something valuable in those experiences that is equally important to Mm -hmm. be investigated. It's not something that can be left out because... What are we trying to investigate? Like just the pleasant states, or are we trying to investigate our entire experience and everything mm-hmm. that's arising? I wonder if it has to do with skillful means a little bit. In my Tibetan class, we're translating a text, and part of it focused on precious human birth. And mm-hmm. um, it actually said in the text that that we that we start with that one because we kind of already dig that. You know, we kind of already dig our birth in some sense. We we think it's good, mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. you know, starting with positive aspects is a good place to start. And so I wonder if that is why this happens, you know, that these states and bliss and bodhisattvas sound better, Mm -hmm. you know, and so they make people more motivated to practice versus talking about dying to everything, which doesn't have as good as ring. Or maybe not. Maybe it shouldn't be that way. But I wonder if that's how it's come about. 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... I mean, I wrote about this on the site, Sid the Salesman. You know, and it's funny, looking at the Buddha's life, that's not how he got into the Dharma. That's not how he got onto the path. He didn't... No one told him, this is a great ride. Like, he, you know, went out and saw, you know, birth, aging, sickness, and death, and he said, oh, shit. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got to practice. I've got to realize what's going right. on here. That's a good and point. It seems like a lot of people enter the path through that door and then I guess others enter the path through the through the door of wanting some fantastic experience that's going to bring them to peace Mm -hmm. and I don't I don't guess it matters as long as you are on the path but it does matter it does kind of matter because that view that it's all about an experience some Mm -hmm. pleasant experience that'll happen in the future at some point becomes the primary obstacle you know so this is something that uh that folks will wrestle with on a retreat if they haven't been on one that, oh yeah how do you feel that you've dealt with it during retreat how have you dealt with this obstacle have you did a lot of help come from the teachers in talking with them or how were you able to get perspective on this on the one hand i'm still dealing with it <laughs> right right yeah not to imply oh. that it's like totally done and you don't have a problem with this yeah, but yeah. there's probably definitely a point where it switches where for a person to be able yeah. to start noticing this a little bit more and not being as attached to that right I don't know. It's, it's somehow a thinning, a thinning out process. One of the teachers on this retreat talked about the unfolding of spiritual, you know, practice as a thinning out process, mm-hmm. as though you know there are clouds in front of the moon, and and slowly but surely those clouds are kind of thinning away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when it happened. I mean, I, I've had great teachers, and Daniel's really down to Daniel Ingram's really down to earth perspectives have helped me a lot in that regard. Mm-hmm. And then also just sitting with the mind that's never happy with what is and (laughs) realizing Mm -hmm. how pointless that is and how it's not really leading anywhere except Mm. for where I already am. (laughs) Right. So, um, all those things. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com Copyright 2007 Music in this podcast provided by C4Chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community 
and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.